You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead Podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Chuck, how are you doing? How was your weekend? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. My weekend was great. And uh, it's amazing what a week of drugs will do uh, to get you back up. I actually <laughs> woke up Monday morning and go, wow, I feel fantastic. So yeah, um, it's nice to nice to feel back. How about you? You, you, uh, you had a little bit of the travel and so... Uh, you're kind of getting, you know, that taste for what it feels like to get home brutally late and uh, have flights delayed. And yeah. Yeah. We went to Oakland to visit my brother and sister-in-law and niece and it was wonderful and it was beautiful out and it was great to see them. But yeah, then on the way back, we were, we made it all the way to Chicago. All we needed to do was take like a 40 minute flight from Chicago to Milwaukee and then the flight was delayed until midnight, and then the plane arrived. We were all ready to get on, and they said, uh, actually, the plane is not going to leave until 6 a.m. So yeah. we decided to rent a car to drive to Milwaukee, and they messed up the rental car. So we didn't actually get on the road until about like 2.30 a.m. It started pouring rain the minute we got in the car. So, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> I did not get very much sleep last night. It was a lot of travel frustrations especially to be so close to home yeah and yet have uh, so much trouble but so we have a little airport here in Brainerd and it's one of those like massively subsidized ones I mean it's it's ridiculous uh there's like one sometimes two flights a day uh down to Minneapolis and back and okay. I, I, I've taken it before because it, it's kind of it, there's parts of it that's kind of convenient you know I can get on here and parking's easy and you don't get charged for it. And the, the baggage, you know, uh, screening is kind of easier in some ways. But, um, the problem I have, I haven't flown it for like a year and a half now. The mm -hmm. problem I always have is that on the way home, first of all, the flights tend to cancel more regularly than, than oh. yeah, too often. Um, but, the big problem was, is on, it seemed like always on the way home, I, my flight would get in like at two or three in the afternoon down in Minneapolis and then the flight home wouldn't be till nine at night. Oh yeah. So good. yeah. So you'd sit in the Minneapolis airport for like six hours and it's a two hour drive. I'm like, I could, I could be home with my kids. I could be home with my wife. I've been gone for four days. What am I doing? And you just start like loathing, um, you know, the Minneapolis airport. So, yeah. yeah so I, I rarely take that last little jump. I usually wind up driving it or taking the shuttle bus, um, for the very reason, you know, like you, it is like the lowest, I, I it seems like it's like the lowest priority flight, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. So, you know, if they're going to shut the airport down at 1230 and, you know, it's between some big flight somewhere else or you, you, you always get bumped. And, uh, yeah, it's really frustrating. I'm yeah, glad you made it back. Me too. And it was a really nice weekend in California. Yeah, I'll bet. So let's talk about the article that you posted yesterday, the completion of your three-part series about the I-49 connector in Shreveport. Um, I'm glad you finally had a chance to finish the series. Yeah, me too. 
And it took an interesting turn that I wasn't expecting. So. Oh, really? What were what what was interesting for you? Um, that you dove into this. I don't know how to pronounce it. Prudhomme and Lee uh, reference. That was kind of. I'm sure something that most people, when reading this report, didn't even read. They probably skimmed over it. And you were like, "No, let's actually dig into it and see why we're <laughs> using this to justify this whole project." And yeah. it was yeah, it's a really interesting analysis. Well, I just finished a, a book called Dreamland, uh, which is about the opiate epidemic in this country. And wow. the, the fascinating thing about the book is that it, it, it basically parallels two separate kind of tracks that, that intersect. The prescription drug uh, kind of revolution we had in this country over fighting pain with mm-hmm. opiates and then this corresponding uh, growth in black tar heroin from Mexico. Oh, and okay. kind of the revolution there and, and how the two intersected. And one of the fascinating things about or frustrating things about this book uh, was that the opiate thing uh, w- was really kept coming back to this op-ed that a doctor had written back in the 90s um, where he was looking at essentially in hospitals where people are able to administer their own morphine. Uh, for So people who are like really in a lot of pain mm-hmm. uh, and then are able to, within certain parameters, you know, dial up and dial back their own morphine dose. Uh, what they found in this very like small sample size in this very controlled environment uh, with people who are getting like intensive medical attention mm-hmm. that they didn't have a higher rate of addiction from opiates than other than other patients. This this little bit of this study was taken and in kind of like this weird, you know, the children's game of telephone where you say something in one end and it comes out the other yeah, in a completely different way. Uh, over the years, you saw uh, people citing this, you know, first it was an op-ed, then it was a study, then it was a definitive study and a massive report and it just grew. And to the point where you had like Purdue Pharma, you had these huge pharmaceutical companies citing this as like definitive research that opiates, when you're dealing with pain, are not addictive. And you you realize that, okay, these people that are doing this are not like corrupt in the sense that, you know, they're like Mr. Evil sitting on top of a, a mountain lair, you know. He are saying, you know, here's how we're going to like destroy the world. But you realize that what they're doing is they're taking like convenient things that are convenient to them and without thinking about it too hard, like taking it the next step. And you do that long enough and you get this like massively distorted outcome. It, it, it was a parallel with this, this Prudhomme and Lee study to me. And, and that's how I looked at it too. Uh, the economic impacts of the I-49 project report that I've been looking at. One of the things that it cited were all these agglomeration effects. Basically, the faster people can drive around in an area, uh, the the more efficient it is and the higher the productivity is. And they actually came up with this ratio. If you increase speeds by 10%, you increase labor productivity by 2.9%. And they cited this study, Prudhomme and Lee. So I went and read the Prudhomme and Lee report. The Prudhomme and Lee report looked at three Korean cities and then 22 French cities. And the the thing is, I mean, right off the bat, 
taking, you know, a, a typical French city or a Korean, you know, one of these three like biggest cities in Korea yeah. and comparing them to Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I, I made the comparison in, in my piece. It's like comparing the physiology of an infant to a retiree. I mean, they're, they're, they have two different body types, two different needs, two different everything. It's, it's not even like a, a, a valid comparison. And you put up some great photos in this article to illustrate that and make the point oh, yeah. really well. Here's a, here's a city of 200,000 people in, uh, in France. And then here's a city of 200,000 people, Shreveport in Louisiana. Go to Google Maps and take a look at these places. I mean, you, can you really take uh, the findings from one and apply them to the other in terms of speed? In that Prudhomme and Lee uh, study, what they were actually looking at w were like minor improvements in the transit systems. Uh, you know, th these 22 largest French cities all have well-developed rail and bus and, you know, very detailed transit systems. Not only that, they're incredibly walkable and dense. Uh, Shreveport mm -hmm. is, is three and a half times the size, you know, physical size uh, area than the uh, equivalent French city with the same population. So in, in these French cities, you know, you have a, just a very different way of getting around. And what they argued was that, you know, and, and they did it not in like a definitive way, but in kind of like a, here's our paper and, you know, someone else take this and build off of it kind of way. They said, you know, what we're seeing is that in these French cities, when you can get people around, we can make marginal improvements in their transit systems. It really has a big effect on productivity because more people can reach more jobs. So what the people writing this Shreveport report did is they took that and they said, okay, uh, in a place where you have you know, nothing but excess auto capacity, mm -hmm. if we increase auto capacity by even more, it will make the labor market more productive and therefore we can justify this project. And it's funny because I, I heard – like I heard from Joe Cortwright yesterday and – you know, we were kind of emailing each other back and forth and he's an economist and a really intelligent guy. We run his stuff all the time. So a city observatory. And I told Joe, I said, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about, uh, calling this a fraud because it, it feels fraudulent to me, but I don't want to be like the chicken little guy running around going, this is fraud. Um, yeah. And he said, no, you probably should call it fraud because it is. <laughs> Um, you know, this is not like rigorous in any way. It's just propaganda. And, you know, when we look at spending $700 million in Shreveport and when we look at dropping a trillion dollars into an infrastructure surge, when we actually get down and start looking at this stuff and all these people who are saying, you know, we need all this money for infrastructure. We need all this money for these projects. And this is going to pay back huge. This stuff is fraud. It's not real. It, it is based on... Uh, a, 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 a set of propositions that feel good to us uh, because, you know, we want to believe that building more is going to be better and we want to believe that it will make the economy stronger and we want to believe that it will help our cities. But when we actually dig into it, it has the exact opposite effect. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that I, I wish I had had the strength <laughs> a couple of weeks ago to finish this while we were, everyone was focused on Shreveport but um, yeah, I, it was important to get this done because of the three parts of that study, this was the one that actually most offended me because this is the one that, uh, like I said, was actual, in my estimation, 
just fraud, just completely uh, a, a mis a misrepresentation of reality. I actually don't mind that it took a couple of weeks to get this out because um, it means that we're keeping the conversation going. And Shreveport, uh, like many of the sort of campaign weeks that we have, is a topic that I definitely want to keep returning to and following the story to its hopeful conclusion of deciding not to build this highway. So, yeah, I'm glad we were able to extend the conversation out a couple of weeks. Well, and the... You know, I, I think it's really helpful to focus on Shreveport because it, it is such a compelling case study. Um, but, you know, when I go through this Prudhomme and Lee report and we start looking at, you know, the, the propaganda that goes into justifying projects like this, like I said at the end of the piece I wrote yesterday, uh, there's a study like this going on in your city right now. You know, mm-hmm. regardless of where you live, there there are people who are putting together or have on the shelf or, you know, are contemplating a study like this to justify some insane, crazy project. And it's not going to be, you know, rigorous math. It's going to be propaganda. And I just want as many people to know this and understand this as possible. Let's switch gears to talk about the March Madness uh, Strongest Town contest. Have you been following that much? Yeah, I, I have. I It's, it's interesting because... Um, you know, you, you busted my bracket right away. Um, yeah, I was just checking mine as well. I've got about half right <laughs> so far, so not great. Well, I was I, I'm a I was a I'm a big fan of York, and I actually really like. I I had a, a really nice experience when I went and spoke in York back in 2013, I think. Um, so it's four years ago now, and it. Mm. I just had a really, really good experience. Skylar Yost, one of our early members, uh, is from York, and oh. I got a great tour, and we had a really good conversation, and I had a great black and chicken sandwich, which always like, uh, <laughs> you know, cements a place as great for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I've been back a, a, a couple times since, and boy, just really, really um, enjoyed York. And then they got they got beat. By Traverse City, which I've been to Traverse City too, and I enjoyed it. I liked it, um, but I felt bad because those were like two of the highest vote getters in like raw numbers for the week. Yeah, I think York would have probably beaten almost anybody else on the list in terms of like raw numbers, but um, you know, just drew Traverse City in the first round, and uh, you know they're gone now, and Traverse City moves on. Yeah, it's interesting how the matchups have shaken out because some of the other contests did end up being very, uh, very stark. Like one city got 97% of the vote or something. So that's, yeah, that's an interesting facet of this year's contest. Last year, I think a lot more of the contests were pretty, pretty close down to like even a few dozen votes, I think, in the end. So when I think this, this round, it will be a lot closer um, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I I'm 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 happy that Lafayette is moving on. Uh I like Killeen, but uh Lafayette I I think has a lot to add, particularly as we get like further on in the contest if they get past Lowell, Massachusetts. Um mm-hmm. I'm kind of going to be interested to see to you know to hear them on the podcast and and if they get to the finals to hear them on the video. Uh Guelph, Ontario is a place where Minicozzi's done a lot of work. And yeah, it just, sounds like a great place. I'm oh, he keep he brings it up. There. 
he brings it up all the time and he always has all these positive things to say about it. So when I saw them in the list, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. And, and now uh, I went through their photos for the second round submission mm-hmm. and just, oh, I, I really, there's a part of me that hopes they win because I really want to go there. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to see it. They're up against Wausau, which, um, mm-hmm. cool, uh, has done a ton of media coverage locally. Uh, they yeah, actually, several of the towns have. Yeah. Wausau, uh, called their actual like TV station called here over the weekend. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah. So I got back to them and that was, um, that's interesting. And then, um, Bellingham where I was at last year. Uh, but that was the, that was the place where I lost my tooth and <laughs> uh, <laughs> had, sure. had to give two speeches with a super glued tooth back in my mouth. Um, I'm, 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 I'm happy they made it out of the first round, but I know we had trouble with their photos and they weren't able to kind of come to the table. Uh, so Valpo's going to get a buy. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. Yeah. So they're going to advance, which I think Valparaiso sounds like a pretty strong town. Another town that you've been to. Valparaiso was fantastic last year. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the university set that up, but but and it was great. I mean, I I got to meet with the engineering class and gave a couple public lectures, and it was really a fantastic day. But I got a tour of the city too, and you know they've done a lot of things. Like I I saw they gave you the the picture of their marketplace and uh, mm-hmm. kind of their town square. Uh, they, they've done some really interesting things with some vacant space to really activate it in their core downtown. And it's, it's fabulous. It's fantastic. Um, a lot of challenges still, but, uh, boy, they're really moving in the right direction. I, I, I think that's a strong candidate. It doesn't surprise me at all that we have a university town. And I think some of these other towns probably are university towns as well. I know the, how do you pronounce it? Guelph? Guelph. 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 Yeah, I know they have a university as well. Um, yeah. That was a trend I saw last year, too, that university towns uh, have some, some unique aspects about them that make them uh, likely to be strong, I think. They create a lot it's of done momentum. the right way. Yeah. I feel bad that, that Wollongong, Australia. I know. I was kind of rooting for that. <laughs> I mean, Ellsworth, Maine, fantastic. I, I've not been. I, I really liked their submissions, and I, I think it's great that they moved on. Uh, they've got a tough competition now with Traverse City, uh, mm-hmm. but there was something about Wollongong. I just, I, I was so honored that, uh, you know, a, a place so far away would uh, would step up and and be part of the contest. And I'm just hoping that, you know, we continue to expand out that way in in future years. It was kind of exciting. Yeah, and the person who submitted that entry, Greg, um, has been a member for a while and was excited about that. So, yeah, I was a little, I was a little disappointed on his behalf, but um, I'm glad they got to participate at least in the first round. So this week we're voting through Thursday again. Yeah, Thursday uh, at 11 p.m. Central, the voting closes. So uh, everything is up on our site right now for you to cast your votes. And then the next round is going to involve our podcast listeners more uh, directly because it'll be four podcasts for the final four. Um, And do you think now we're going to be recording those on mostly on Friday and maybe a little bit on Monday? I know you're heading out on vacation Friday evening. Um, Do you think you're going to be able to do any of those podcasts or should (laughs) I plan to be? Are you going to be packing and whatnot? Uh, we're actually leaving at noon on Friday, so I okay. might be able to do a couple in the morning if we can get them 
lined up. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I would love of you and me doing them. Last year I did all four, I think, and it was it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that it's really important for our podcast listeners and uh, you know our members and other people to go and vote. A lot of the votes, uh, you know, often become like local boosters trying to uh, you know tell yeah. people around go. But but we do get a, a quite a few people in our you know movement who take this very seriously. Yeah. who go in and, and, you know, make a good case one way or the other. And I, I, you know, that's a really important part of this conversation. How, how do we, you know, let's, let's actually talk about and identify the attributes that make these places great, strong towns and, uh, and, and cast a good kind of discerning vote. So I, I love when our members and our, our, uh, our core audience do that. It's a real helpful part of this, this whole dialogue. Yeah, and this round um, is one of my favorites because it's a series of photos that each town has submitted. So I think that's kind of fun. Last round was reading descriptions. Um, Some of those maybe got a little long for you, but the photos take just a few minutes to kind of take in, and they've written, you know, really short descriptions of what why this photo shows their town strength. So, yeah, it's that's a fun way to get to know the towns a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to welcome our newest and renewing members to the Strong Towns Movement who joined or renewed last week. They include Kara Blanagan of Peachtree Corners, Georgia, Megan Feaser of York, Pennsylvania, uh, David Floyd of Bel Air, Kansas, Michael Halfrich of York, Pennsylvania, and Michael Smith of Rockford, Illinois. So um, thanks, York folks, for joining us, yeah. even though... You guys didn't quite make it to the next round, um, but I appreciate that you guys are uh, joining us as members. And hopefully, well, Michael is a long-term uh, friendship. Yeah, Michael um, actually emailed me last week, um, mm-hmm. or the week before. At some point in the last, I, I was—I've been getting caught up on emails, so I'm actually, uh, you know, a little bit behind. But Michael's uh, was on the council when I spoke there in 2013. Oh, cool! And now is the council president. Yeah. And uh, we've had an interesting dialogue back and forth. I, I know that uh, you know they're 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 working on a lot of strong towns kind of ideas, and are very interested in you know incremental development and and making that place uh, incrementally better. It it's got great bones. I mean it, it is a it is a very exciting place. I really like York. So yeah, we're having that ongoing dialogue and he said, thanks for the reminder to renew my membership. I had let it lapse. So I really appreciate it as well. Thank you, everybody. You mentioned you were reading Dreamland. Are there any other books that you've been uh, tuning into lately or podcasts? Well, I got through Dreamland um, this last weekend and boy, I, I, I can't recommend that book enough. You know, I'm was I'm a little really bit depressing or was there some positive notes um, at the end? It was it was very eye opening um, for someone who you know I, I'm familiar with the prescription drug world a, a little mm-hmm. bit um, simply Has because that impacted your community. Um, you know, of that I'm naive, right? Okay. I, I I mean, I my my dad. I'll just say this, you know, not to get too personal, but my dad had polio when he was a kid. And so his one leg is like an inch and a half shorter than the other mm-hmm. um, and has very little meat on it. It's very little muscle. So you can imagine how, I mean, walk around with, you know, two shoes that are mismatched for a day 
and your back will hurt. Um, do that for your life. And, you know, it just messes up your whole body. And my dad's had chronic pain for, I mean, since, since <laughs> his entire life, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I remember when um, Oxycontin came out. I mean, I, I I very distinctly remember because he was he was on some pretty nasty pain pills. I I, I don't know all the stuff that he has to do medically, um, but I do know he was on the kind that would like turn you to jelly for a little while and then you know go away. And and mm-hmm. the great thing about Oxycontin when it came out was that it was supposed to be this longer time release kind of thing. So I'm I'm very familiar with the prescription drug, uh, you know, from like the the person in chronic pain. What I was not prepared for uh, was just you know some of the ways that uh, this was abused, some of the ways that you know these pill factories would would prescribe these things with very little. I mean, I'm used to my dad where he has like these intensive uh, medical appointments all the time. And, and, you know, lots of people kind of up in his business about his treatment and interactions and all this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very, it was very eye opening to me to learn just the millions of people who, uh, you know, I, I have been prescribed these drugs for all kinds of things. And then also to get kind of the interaction between, uh, that and the heroin market, you know, you, mm-hmm. there's a certain point where, uh, the increased dosage uh, on the uh, the narcotics uh, and and the price of them. I mean, they told a bunch of stories about how people would they'd get their Medicare card. Uh, you know, you get a disability, you you get on Medicare, and then um, you could get a you know these prescription drugs, mm-hmm. and then turn around and sell them, and then use that essentially to buy cheaper heroin, and then also have the cash you needed to make it through the month. And you look at this and go, what a, what an absolute tragedy on like so many levels. Mm-hmm. But towards the end of the book, he got into uh, this community in Ohio uh, that was kind of turning the corner in a sense. And in a very strong towns kind of way, you get the notion that a, a lot of what needs to happen or a lot of what will help turn the corner in these places is community is the idea that instead of having us all isolated in our own homes and our kids isolated in their own bedrooms, Mm -hmm. everybody isolated from each other, that the way you kind of get through an epidemic like this or the way you overcome uh, addiction is the opposite of isolation. It's community. And that, you know, came out towards the end of the book and actually is kind of like a, a ray of hope, um, in contrast to what is, yeah, a pretty depressing story. It sounds like worth a read, uh, especially since it's a topic that I think is in the news a lot these days and affects a lot of communities across the country. I, I do suspect that Brainerd has, you know, far more of this problem than I'm aware of. I mean, I think that's the that's the thing that kept coming back to me. I'm 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 very uh, I'm very distanced from this world. You know, and I think that um, the thing that uh, kept coming up over and over in this book is that you might be distanced from this. You might think you're distanced from this world, but you're really not. And I think one of the things that was the most like eye opening or startling to me was how uh, as the you know opiate addiction problem grew, 
it grew largely among white um, middle class, upper middle class people, mm -hmm. um, families that, you know, heroin is a drug of the inner city. It's not a drug of, you know, suburban Ohio. How could this, you know, be affecting my kid? How could my kid die from heroin? It's just not, you know, we're, we're not those kind of people. And I think the good thing or the, you know, the positive maybe to come out of this is that there has been a lot of um, softening in terms of the way people look at drugs and drug abuse. And in states like Ohio, where this has become you know, epidemic proportions, you see Republicans joining Democrats now uh, calling for, uh, you know, less incarceration, more treatment, more actually, you know, working at the core causes of addiction and the, the ways you overcome this. And I, I personally think that that can only be a healthy dialogue. Well, we should probably run because we had a staff meeting, but I am really excited about the podcast that we have coming out this Thursday. It's taken oh, yeah. a while to uh, arrange this interview, but yeah, I'm pretty excited. Are you? Uh, yeah, we'll see. Um. <laughs> <laughs> do you even remember what I'm talking about right now? No, I do. I do. But I'm, uh, you know, I hope I'm up to the, the task, the challenge. So we'll see. All right. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening and uh, have a great week. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.